News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's get an update now to this ongoing story involving possible Chinese interference in our 2020 federal election. There's been a lot of discussion about this. Great coverage at globalnews.ca by our next guest, of course, Sam Cooper, Global National Investigative Journalist. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Simi. The story just seems to get bigger and bigger. What is the latest that you've learned? The latest I've learned is about this uh, Privy Council Office intelligence document published uh, for senior Canadian officials in February 2020. That's just a few months after the 2019 election. And uh, the allegations are stunning. Uh, The the document says that uh, China targeted at least 11 candidates only in the greater Toronto area for influence. The influence network is explained in the document as uh, under the guidance of the Toronto Chinese consulate involving Canadian politicians, their, quote, co-opted co-opted staff members. And the key here, Simi, is uh, Canadian intelligence has warned in the document, China is using an extensive network of community groups to, this is a quote, allow it to obfuscate communication and the flow of funds between Canadian targets and Chinese officials. Uh, Two more shocking things. Uh, The conclusion of Canadian intelligence is this was all done so that China could uh, seek to influence government officials to take positions of benefit to China's interests in Canada's federal government. And uh, here's the real stunner. Canadian intelligence warned China's efforts uh, is, uh, are funding their influence networks more broadly. They're resourcing them uh, more, more, more powerfully. And, quote, foreign interference efforts are likely to be more persistent and pervasive in future elections. This is, again, one more time, a Canadian high-level intelligence document for senior leaders in the Trudeau government, February 2020. Okay, so if that was back then, just a few months after that 2019 election, what has been done since then? Like, what kind of reaction did the Privy Council have? Well, uh, as my reporting has shown, you know, according to the experts and sources I talked to, over the past uh, month and a half, Really, the Canadian government has revealed nothing of this sophisticated alleged campaign. That, that and we're again, we're only talking about investigations in Toronto. Uh, it wasn't until Global News's revelations uh, in the past uh, few months, with a few stories, that the government has uh, come forward uh, two weeks ago and said. Now they will look at a foreign agent registry, which is something that the experts we quoted in our story said that Canada has a huge gap in uh, combating foreign interference, unlike our allies in the United States, Australia, who have uh, registries that would uh, force people that are working, uh, you know, in a covert way for hostile governments to uh, declare simply that they have some interest with with another government. And uh, that way, Canada can can find a way to prosecute this modern, sophisticated form of interference, most commonly used most extensively by China, but some other uh, hostile nations as well. Okay, so and as you you have been reading about, I've been reading about this because you've been covering this so well, Sam. So is it only now that you get the sense that the government is starting to take this seriously, even though from what you've documented, they had this evidence and information a couple of years ago? I would say very bluntly, yes. Uh, again, it's not my conclusion. We're talking about experts such as David Mulroney, the, the former ambassador to China, who's had a lot of uh, uh, visibility on similar intelligence from his time in government. 
uh, these types of experts say that, yes, it's only now after Global's investigative exposure that the government is admitting there is a very big problem. They're, they're, it seems, still denying certain details, but publicly, as a result of our reports, it is only now the government is saying we will consult the public at least about possibly putting in this type of foreign agent registry that most of Canada's uh, uh, allies already have in place, in addition to very strong laws to prosecute this type of modern interference. Has there been any reaction from the Chinese government side of this, Sam? I've contacted a number of times uh, the Chinese uh, embassy in Ottawa, the uh, consulate in in Toronto. I'm familiar with the Vancouver consulate from a lot of my reporting in Vancouver over the past few years. We have had uh, no response from the Chinese government to my questions, which are very detailed and supported by documents. But we have heard uh, through other reporting that China, for example, uh, denied some of uh, these these widespread reports about another issue, that is these secret Chinese police stations that the RCMP is investigating. China has denied that they are using such locations for illegal uh, covert so-called, you know, harassment and targeting of Chinese diaspora groups, which is what is alleged in addition to the political interference connected to these groups I'm reporting about. Okay, so what are the questions that you still have here, Sam? What are the next steps? Well, the next steps are uh, looking for specific amounts of funding uh, to specific politicians. Uh, We have not identified any of these alleged 11 candidates in the Toronto area as of yet. Uh, As you know, Simi, I'm working on these matters. But uh, another huge point from this memo I'd like to just quote and is something that I'm working on. uh, The document says that besides funding, China's United Front Work Department is also likely to offer candidates logistical support, favorable media coverage and endorsements. So we're not just talking about, you know, ferreting out where funds are going to uh, candidates that would be favored by Beijing. We're talking about a very extensive network involving media, involving volunteers, involving support for candidates that China wants in in Canada's federal government to represent its views. And so I will be looking for further, you know, detailed evidence and stories along those uh, along those lines. Well, I look forward to reading more about it. Sam, thank you. Thanks, Simi. And have a good holiday. That's Sam Cooper, Global National Investigative Journalist, talking about his latest piece on the issue of alleged Chinese interference in Canadian elections. Check it out in its entirety at globalnews.ca or cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We've got more snow on the way, as you've heard in the forecast there. We have the potential for some freezing rain, too. And all of that, combined with what we already have on our streets, is going to mean an increasing struggle for people to get around. We'll talk in particular about the city of Vancouver. Now, coming up in this hour, we'll hear from Vancouver City Councilor Sarah Kirby-Young about the snow removal efforts in the city. There are people who are pointing a lot of fingers at City Hall, saying the city is not doing enough to help people get around. And in fact, there's a, there's a lot of people who've said that this morning, emailing me saying, you know, this neighborhood is bad, this street is bad, this isn't cleared there. Uh, many residents have taken to social media to show unplowed, you know, streets and roads and access ways. So did Vancouver mess this up? Well, joining us now to talk more about that is Kit Sauter, who's the co-chair of the Vancouver Renters Advisory Committee. Good morning, Kit. Morning, Sammy. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you as well. What's it like in your neighborhood? Uh, it's it's not great. 
Um, I I went out to run some errands and, and do some Christmas shopping with my daughter yesterday. Um, my wife and I were a, a one-vehicle family, um, and she stayed home to work the last two days because driving out to Surrey uh, for her job was uh, too rough of a commute. And I figured that if I stayed on the main thoroughfares um, with a stroller and a two-and-a-half-year-old, um, I'd be okay. But within two blocks of leaving the house heading down Kingsway, I hit um, an intersection where Kingsway was clear. But as soon as you were two feet off of um, the car lanes, um, the intersection was more than a foot deep in choppy snow. And uh, I encountered that almost a dozen times around the city over the course of uh, four hours walking up and down Main Street, Fraser, uh, and Broadway. Right. And, and those are major great. those are major thoroughfares. They absolutely are. And so still yeah. not clear enough for you to get by with a stroller and this is days after the snow. Yeah, well, and I, I posted a video uh to Twitter and, and other social media yesterday uh of the intersection right in front of Charles Tupper actually on King Ed. And uh I broke my stroller there. Um the snow was so high and so deep that when I pulled the stroller backwards through the snow. Um, the braking mechanism was forced down and now the stroller's broken. So, I mean, like, the the base expectation that I think every citizen should have is that a city follows its own bylaws. Um, and whether it's Ontario Street um, beside the park, whether it's King Ed beside Charles Tupper, um, basically none of the sidewalks beside city-owned properties were properly cleaned and plowed. Um, and it was 72 hours after uh, snow, and it was more than 14 hours after snow had stopped. So I don't know why the city hasn't been able to get into it. You know, it's interesting because there's a story in the news this morning about how the city of Vancouver has not issued any tickets for snow removal this year. And we had a caller who made a good point saying, well, how can they issue tickets to other people when they're not doing a good job themselves? 100%. And I mean, I uh, was frustrated obviously, by, by what happened yesterday. It was a beautiful day. But um, I went and I, I did some digging, knowing that we were going to chat. And the city ran a, a $583 million surplus last year. Right, that, That's more than half a billion dollars for city and park board facilities operations and, and uh, staffing expenditures. And then I went to look at um, the VSB. And unlike all of the other major school districts in the province, which North Vancouver, Burnaby, Coquitlam, Surrey, have five to ten years of back catalog of budgets, Vancouver School Board has interestingly scrubbed its site. Um, And so I wasn't able to actually even find what the budget was for last year to figure out whether or not they have a facilities budget for snow removal. Um, But that's something that I'd like to see the media dig a little bit further into because it's a little silly to me that taxpayers and citizens aren't able to find basic and rudimentary information about our school districts. Well, if they were hoping that there would be no snow and therefore the question wouldn't get asked, I guess that's not going to happen, is it? Because that's what happens is something like this happens. Immediately we start to look at that. I've had a number of people point out, you know, through emails and phone calls that it is city-owned buildings and facilities where they see a big problem. Mm-hmm, 100%. And one thing I do want to say is I don't think that with seven weeks on the job, um, Ken Sim and ABC Vancouver are necessarily to blame for any of this. What I would suggest is that with super majorities on council, park, and school board, they have an opportunity right now in the budgetary cycle to do something that hasn't been approached um, for some time, which is look at joint facilities agreements, look at joint budgeting agreements, where they have an opportunity to get a coordination in place 
where Park City and school board staff could all right. potentially be working together. Now, the problem is Vancouver School Board is three years overdue on its long-term capital planning, right? They don't do the work necessary to engage with the city of Vancouver and plan hand-in-hand. So I don't know how they would possibly do that with their human resourcing and their snow removal. Right. I guess, Can I also wonder, too, though, seven weeks on the job, sure, that's all well and good, but you can make some phone calls. You can get out in front of this thing and talk about it. You can put some pressure on, you know, city employees to make sure this work gets done. Yeah, 100%. And I I think that... um, it's important and incumbent for our local officials to recognize that their job is to hold staff accountable, to ask the tough questions. And when they don't get the answers they like to crack the whip, right? Um, We are three days out from Christmas and half of all households in the city don't have a vehicle. Um, Quite frankly, the roads aren't that great for cars right now either. And it would be a lot safer for folks to be walking their local high streets, shopping local, spending more money with bigger impact so that we can kind of boost the economy while everyone's facing a a really tough cost of living crisis. Kit, good point. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Happy holidays, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. We've got more snow on the way, freezing rain for parts of the Fraser Valley too. And we're already cleaning up and dealing with the impacts of the last two uh, snow events that we have had. In fact, a lot of people would argue we're not done with the last one of just this week. Still very difficult for lots of people to get around. Let's talk more about that this morning. Sarah Kirby Young joins us now, Vancouver City Councillor. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. Listen, how, how would you rate how the city has done when it comes to snow removal? Uh, I think that we are dealing with an unprecedented snow event. You hear people likening this back to 1996, so, you know, sort of a, a generation ago. Um, and in terms of that, it's something that is more than the city would deal with normally. Um, city, when it's doing its proactive planning on snow removal, looks at a five-year average. We spend about $5.1 million um, for, on average in terms of snow readiness and treatment. Um, and we have stepped that up over a number of years. In 2017, um, snow readiness was at a third of the investment level that it is today. And so we're continuing to invest in it. But certainly you're seeing the impact of this really significant snowfall, not just in Vancouver, but across the region um, to the point that it shut down ferries um, and our airport, essentially. Right. But when you hear all the stories, you see the pictures on the news, are are you concerned that perhaps the city could have done or could be doing a better job? Well, I think we can always, I mean, we should always be looking towards continuous improvement. I think that we are getting better. As I said, we're dealing with an unprecedented situation here. Um, I brought a motion forward in 2020 to improve the pedestrian prioritization in our snow response. And that resulted in uh, actually documenting last year in 2021 Formerly, our snow policy and increasing pedestrian priority, uh, we purchased a couple of sidewalk dedicated equipment, clearing pieces of um, specialized equipment that are used for those bridges that we did not have before. As I said, we've increased the investment. Um, the city has increased its salt brining capacity multifold. So we continue to make improvements, um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't more that we can be doing. Right. And let's talk about like people who are kind of out on the streets at this time, too. People are having issues who have mobility issues, disabilities. Um, and as well, you've got people who are still living on the streets at this time. Has the city been stepping up those efforts? Yeah. I mean, you, you touched on the heart of it is that the number one driving goal in the snow response is safety. Um, and that's really sort of three pronged. And that's um, trying to protect those that are experiencing homelessness that are on our streets in these record cold temperatures. So that's the expansion of the um, warming sh- shelters and warming locations in addition to additional shelter beds. 
Um, so that's sort of one key tenant. The other one is ensuring access is clear on roads and near hospitals uh, for emergency services, whether it's police, ambulance, fire. That's really critical. Um, and then clearing those priority roads and sidewalks for vehicle and pedestrian use. And so that's really sort of in terms of triaging the response. That's where the priority starts. Absolutely. Right. Although we have heard that, you know, there's concern about even city-owned facilities kind of not getting that snow removal done fast enough. Is that something that you'd be looking into? Uh, well, I think that, um, you know, we, we have a responsibility, as does um, everybody in the city, and I'm really appreciative of a lot of the folks that have stepped up to clear sidewalks, um, especially around those priority areas that we identified near bus stops, curb and arterial ramps for people with mobility challenges, and so on. And so, yes, absolutely, the city needs to do its part. But if it's a choice between, say, the Queen Elizabeth Plaza and clearing a major bus route or a route to a hospital, um, that will get done first. Um, and then the crews will triage and go through the snow protocol as the equipment and the personnel allows. But we do have the ability to scale up. We have several hundred staff. We've invested additional money in equipment. And, you know, with these extreme weather events, we need to continue to look at is our snow response sufficient and do we need to continue ramping that up? Do you think it was efficient? Like this year, when we heard earlier this week about the snow and the streets are still pretty bad a couple, you know, two days afterwards. Do you look at that and think, yeah, maybe we need a review of this when this is all said and done? I think we should always be reviewing um, for best practices and for ongoing improvement. I think that um, we're getting better at placing the priority where it needs to be. Um, But I think a review of the kind of equipment that we use is important. Um, The ability to scale up is important. Um, Sometimes, you know, can we supplement our own resources with outside services? That can be tricky. I mean, the city itself has 72 pieces of clearing equipment and that is, you know, different types of trucks, whether they come with a plow and salter or brine sprayers, whatever the case is. And, you know, we invested, I think, 2017, another $5 million. We got an additional four trucks coming into the fleet last year. Um, So certainly we can ramp it up. But just to give you a bit of a a sense of um, kind of comparison, Vancouver spends about $5 million in average on our snow response, and that's based over five years. But cities like Toronto, spends uh, $90 million. Calgary, that gets a lot more snow, spends $50 million. So really tenfold what Vancouver does. Um, And it has been based on the kind of weather that we get. If we see more weather coming, we're going to have to ramp it up. Right, which we also, we see more weather coming right now, don't we? Well, absolutely we do. And as I said, that's why we have more equipment that's came in, uh, that was purchased last year that's coming into the fleet again for this year. So we have continually been making those investments. Um, But if uh, we're going to see this and that five-year pattern is changing, um, then, then we'll need to do that. We do deploy staff too, so we have the ability to ramp up the amount of staff so that we keep those crews out and rotating, and so they're pulled off other duties sometimes in order to try to scale up the response. Were you surprised to hear that the city hasn't issued any tickets for snow removal? Uh, no, this is very consistent with other patterns last year. When when you have the first snowfall, um, what happens is the focus is on education and make, trying to get the communication, the word out, reminding people how important it is to people um, that may be mobility challenged um, and seniors especially to clear their own sidewalks. And then when we have the second snowfall, that's when you see our inspectors going out, um, starting to issue those violation tickets, giving people a chance to correct it. And if not, you'll see those tickets happen. So I think we're on a similar pace for last year. Um, But definitely we have gotten about 900 complaints so far. We've got um, a number of inspectors that are out there and you'll start starting to see those violations are being issued. I know a lot of what we're hearing right now is is kind of regular par for the course when we have a snowstorm, especially a big one like we've had here. What do you want the public then to know about the city's response? Well, I want the public to know that uh, safety is the first priority. I want the public to know that we're taking the concerns seriously. 
um, that we continue to invest in the fleet, um, that we're updating the practices. Um, and the feedback is really important because if something is not working, that gives us a chance to adjust the protocol, just like we heard previously around pedestrians weren't prioritized enough. And now we have identified those 225 winter priority sidewalks. So that's where tickets will get issued. That's where the priority will go if they're not cleared. That's why we have the specialized equipment to clear the pedestrian path on the three bridges now, Granville, Canby and Burrard. Um, and so um, that feedback definitely helps us to shape the policy. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. It has been a very cold week, and we expect more of that for the next day or two before things start to warm up on the weekend. What it means is you've probably been cranking that heat at home uh, to make sure that everybody stays cozy. And that's exactly what BC Hydro has noticed as well. Joining us now to talk more about that is Maura Scott, spokesperson for BC Hydro. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, I understand we set a couple of records this week. We did. So like you said, we've obviously seen freezing temperatures right across the province, and we at BC Hydro have seen a big jump in demand for electricity, obviously, as home heating requirements have gone way up. Um, as a result of this, we've actually seen two of our all-time demand records fall this week. So first it happened on Monday evening, and then it was again broken last night when consumption reached about 10,900 megawatts. I know that doesn't mean really anything to anybody. So to put that into perspective, it's about 15% higher um, than it was on the same day the previous week before this cold snap began. And the difference is about the equivalent of running about 15 of our Ruskin generating stations at full capacity. So it's a lot of power. That is a lot of power. Now, is this normally what you see happen more? Like if the temperature goes down, you know there's going to get a spike, but this spike exceeded even what was expected? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is something that our system planners look at constantly. We knew demand was going to be really high this week. We did expect to see uh, the record potentially fall. It has, like I said, uh, fallen twice this week. Um, But, you know, we are really lucky here in BC. We have more than enough power to meet this demand. We're really fortunate to have this um, integrated provincial system that's powered by water. And the benefit of it is really that we can ramp up generation as needed. And that's exactly what we've done this week to meet the demand. Okay, so it, it once or twice, are you expecting more of that perhaps over the next couple of days? It's, it's staying quite cold, isn't it? Yeah, so we expect demand will remain high today. Um, we don't think that we'll see another record broken, although it could potentially happen. But we know that the weather pattern is obviously going to start to shift and uh, temperatures are going to start to increase. So we expect to see the demand go down with that happening. Right. Any advice for people then to kind of make sure that we don't go too crazy with this? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a number of no-cost and low-cost ways um, that people can save energy and money during times like this. So um, one thing that we always recommend is actively managing your home heating. You know, you can turn down the heat when no one's at home and when everyone's sleeping. So we kind of recommend 16 degrees Celsius when people are sleeping or away from the home, uh, 21 degrees Celsius when they're kind of just relaxing at home. And if you're kind of busy moving around at home, you could always put the uh, thermostat down to about 18 while you're doing housework or cleaning. But, you know, you really want to avoid cranking up the thermostat because it doesn't heat the home any faster than turning it up a degree or two at a time. Right. But it makes us feel better because we're sure th- we're, we think the heat is coming if we do that, right? If we, if we turn the heat up. Okay. So expecting that's going to increase there. Um, and overall though, how has this winter been or how has this season been compared to the same time last year? 
uh, when it comes to electricity demand. I mean, we've obviously had colder temperatures, so we are seeing um, a higher demand uh, for electricity. But obviously, this week has been the most significant with the really, really, really cold temperatures. But like I said, we do have more than enough power in BC to to meet the demand, and it's something that we're always planning for. so customers can be assured that, you know, nothing is going to happen with their power. Well, that's good. Uh, one of the other issues we wanted to talk to you about this morning, Maura, as well, is the story from the B.C. government saying that they're going to block new or temporarily block new cryptocurrency mining operations. Is this something that has had an impact on B.C. Hydro in, in the last few years? Yeah. So, um, you know, at BC Hydro, our goal is always to keep our rates affordable for customers. And in this case, we really want to protect them kind of against this volatile industry that could potentially reduce electricity supply. Uh, crypto mining operations use a ton of power. Um, we, Because of um, blocks and moratoriums put in places in places like China, we've actually seen an influx of crypto, uh, cryptocurrency mining operations into North America, and particularly into places like D.C. that do have an abundance of clean electricity that is relatively inexpensive. Um, so over the past year, when cryptocurrency prices were flourishing, D.C. Hydro was actually faced with close to 2,000 megawatts of interconnection requests, and that's about enough power uh, for 900,000 homes in BC. So as a result, um, like you said, we've been working with government to temporarily pause um, some of these projects for the next 18 months. And what this really does is gives BC Hydro government and our stakeholders, including First Nations, the opportunity to review and kind of come up with a long-term strategy uh, for dealing with the cryptocurrency mining landscape. Okay. And so what would that long-term strategy potentially look like? Or what is the process like for developing that? Well, I think what we're really focused on here, I mean, obviously, BC Hydro welcomes new load. We have enough power to strategically use for things like heat pumps, uh, EVs, uh, helping industry make the switch from using fossil fuels to using clean electricity. Um, But we want to kind of make sure that there's not an unchecked growth of cryptocurrency operations in BC that could make it more difficult for us to meet our crypto or for us to meet our electrification targets and keep rates low for our customers. So it's something that we're going to continue to work on very closely with government and other stakeholders. Um, We want to make sure that the power that we have available um, is used to help with electrification and doesn't get used up um, for cryptocurrency mining, which, you know, at the end of the day, doesn't really provide um, the same benefits for communities in the forms of jobs and economic growth and that type of thing. Right. So is this, um, is BC a bit of a, you know, hotspot, so to speak, when it comes to cryptocurrency mining? Oh, certainly. Um, Like I said, you know, we have an abundance of clean power here, which is obviously of interest to people. We have, um, you know, a very affordable electricity rates here, which makes it um, really interesting. But, you know, BC isn't the only um, province that's taking steps like this. We have, like, you know, closer to home, some Canadian provinces in the U.S. states like Quebec, Manitoba, New York, and Idaho have all put restrictions in place on crypto mining um, operations while they kind of work to figure out a long-term strategy. So there are a number of other provinces and states out there right now that are in the same situation as us. They're seeing a huge influx of requests. Um, and they want to make sure that that they're that they have kind of a long term strategy, and that's exactly what we're trying to do too. All right. Well, listen. Thank you very much for your time this morning, Maura. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. This is mornings with Simi. I think it's going to be a good weekend to uh, cuddle up at home, get cozy by the fireplace, maybe open some of those presents because it's going to be messy outside. Let's get an update on that forecast. Now, Terry Lang is with us, meteorologist for Environment Climate Change Canada. Good morning, Terry. Good morning. 
So this is keeping you very busy these days, isn't it? Very, very busy. Okay, let's talk about that. So the temperature, what's it like right now? Well, certainly on the cold side, um, you know, and the, uh, continuing sort of that unusual pattern uh, for this uh, area for this time of year. Um, the good news is, is it's going to eventually warm up, but in between there, there's going to be a lot of weather. Let's talk about that. What kind of weather? Well, we're going to see the snow uh, start uh, late this evening and continue overnight and through most of the morning and into the afternoon uh, tomorrow. Uh, Then we'll probably see a transition to freezing rain or ice pellets. Um, Probably with some of the snow still hanging around, especially in the higher elevations, eventually uh, we will see a transition to rain on Saturday, uh, possibly heavy. Uh, So that's going to create some really messy uh, conditions for uh, probably one of the busiest travel times of the year. You know, Terry, there's nothing good when you put words together like ice pellets that comes of that. (laughs) So what does that mean exactly? How do we get ice pellets? Well, it's a little bit tricky to describe, but it has to do with how deep the layer of really cold air is at the surface. Um, and we know that we're getting that cold air because we're getting those easterly winds out of the interior. And that's bringing that Arctic air. So it keeps the surface layer really, really cold. So if that layer is deep enough, um, if you have some rain that comes over top, because in the atmosphere it's warming up in the upper layers, once it falls through that uh, cold layer, if the cold layer is shallow, it'll fall as freezing rain. So it'll just stick to everything, uh, coats everything, coats uh, the power lines, people's cars, roads. But if the, uh, the the thick layer of cold air is deep enough, it turns into pellets, uh, sort of frozen raindrops. So it kind of looks like a little bit like small hail, but it's actually a whole different process that forms it. So. Okay. That was fascinating. Um, that was a fascinating description, actually, what you just did there. So we're going to get this. We don't get that very often, do we? Certainly not on the lower mainland. Um, you know, you need the, exactly the right conditions for that to happen. And um, when you get ice pellets, it's actually a little bit better uh, in terms of driving just because it's not freezing to everything. Uh, but if you're in an airplane, it's bad news because we know that there's freezing rain up in the higher atmosphere, too. So. And we know that a lot of people are trying to travel anyway, right across, you know, the country for the holidays, for the weekend. What is going on with this big storm we keep hearing about that is happening, apparently impacting everything in North America? Well, there's two systems going on. And of course, we still have the the effects of the first snow that went through the lower mainland. That has a cascading effect through everywhere. I was one of those people that was affected. Um, but we have two weather systems about to, to mess with uh, the weather here in, uh, uh, in Canada. We have one going through uh, Ontario that will go through over the next couple of days, and that's a big snowstorm with a lot of winds, uh, snow, freezing rain, the whole bit. Uh, so that's going to mess up eastern Canada, and then the one coming into the lower mainland, which is really going to affect travel. So our message is, you know, if you can um, uh, postpone your, your travel, it's probably a good idea because it really is going to be messy. Our concern is, especially in the um, 
the Fraser Valley, the cold air kind of gets trapped in there. So if you continually have sort of that warmer air, and we talked about, you know, with this freezing rain, you could see uh, some continued freezing rain, as well as the snow moving in there and the winds howling out of uh, the interior. You can get a lot of blowing and drifting snow uh, through the Fraser Valley as well. So travel is just going to be really, really tricky. Howling does not sound good at all. When do things start to change for us? Well, certainly we do see that transition to warmer air uh, coming on Saturday. It is coming with rain, though, so uh, and it could be heavy, especially in the higher elevation, so that could lead to some, some more issues. But certainly it's warming up, uh, and we'll get rid of those really, really uh, cold wind chills and all those really, really cold temperatures. So looking up, but boy, we sure have a ways to go to get through um, the weather that comes with the warm-up. Sure feels like it does. Okay, what, what's our normal temperatures for this time of year, Terry? What can we usually expect? Well, certainly uh, warmer than what what you're having now. Average high, so that's a 30-year average, is around plus 6. And average overnight low is around plus 1. So way, way below that right now, you know, sitting minus 13 with wind chills around minus 20, which is, uh, you know, uh, such a change for uh, people around the lower mainland. I was going to say, we don't usually hear wind chills of minus double digits around here. Uh, So it is unusual. So do you see, like, is January shaping up to be more back to normal? Well, um, it's the the forecast for the winter is for um, below average temperatures and above average precipitation, sort of that's typical La Nina. However, the La Nina is... um, forecast to be on the weak side so and what that means is it kind of just makes it a little bit harder to forecast and of course sometimes uh, the long-range forecasting is a bit of a fine art form (laughs) that's a very good way to put it terry thank you so much for your time this morning you're welcome